Today is really just kind of a question and answer session. So as we begin, if you have questions about property evidence, evidence management, being an evidence custodian, or specific issues to your state, uh, if you'll type those into the question box, we'll answer those at the end of the show, uh, and, and we might get to some of them. But I thought it might be interesting to take some of the questions that I routinely get week in and week out from evidence custodians across the country, or questions that I get in classes, or questions that I see on evidence forums, and maybe put them all into one one episode and talk about the different questions or provide answers or at least an answer to some of these questions in one place. And hopefully, if you have questions, we will get to some of those as well. But one of the most common questions that I get, uh, whether it's in training classes or through email, is from people who have just started in property and evidence. Uh, people that have just started, they've either just been assigned or they've just been hired to work in that evidence management role. Uh, so they typically have questions, and I'm going to paraphrase and kind of combine all of them into one rather than answer or ask a specific or quote a specific person's question. But what, what, do I, what should I do to prepare me for this role or my job or this assignment? And I think there are four things. Uh, to answer that question. The first thing you should do when you're assigned to property evidence or evidence management, evidence control, whatever the title is, there are four things that you need to do right off the bat in order to help you be more successful in your role as an evidence custodian. The very first thing I would do, the minute that you're assigned, uh, whenever you become an official part of that organization, or if it's an assignment change and you're being assigned to that position, the very first thing I would do it would be to request a full 100% inventory of everything in the evidence room. Everything in the vault, request a 100% inventory. Now, if you've worked in an evidence vault, like me, like you, then you probably know that what you're asking for isn't going to happen. Uh, I would say, between 85 and 90% chance that that is not going to happen. And it's especially not going to happen before you're assigned to the unit. But here's why it's an important question. Uh, when you ask this question, I would make it, I would document it, memorialize it in an email to your chain of commands, through your chain of command. Make this formal request for a 100% inventory because as soon as you step foot in that door, you are responsible for 100% of the evidence that is stored by your agency. Even if you've not done an inventory, even if you've never been to training, as soon as you're assigned to that unit, you are responsible for all of that evidence. What making that request does is it puts people on notice, it puts your chain of command on notice, and it memorializes, it, it formalizes that you know that you're stepping into an assignment where you're responsible for things and that you want to know exactly what you're responsible for. And it's probably going to be very illustrative to you as well when you move into that assignment and you realize why there hasn't been an inventory before, or in some cases, why it's just not physically possible to do that inventory. But nevertheless, you're responsible for it. So my probably my biggest piece of advice for someone being assigned to that unit is to request an inventory. 
whether or not they're going to do it, memorialize it, put it down, and then make it your responsibility to make sure that that happens as soon as humanly possible. The second thing I would do, uh, just read thoroughly and understand thoroughly your agency's policy and procedures with respect to evidence and property evidence and evidence management. That's so important that that you do that because just like all the stuff in that room, you're responsible for knowing those policies and procedures, even if you don't understand them yet. I mean, you haven't been there yet. You haven't worked with them yet. You have to understand the letter of the law before you can understand the spirit of the law. And until you understand those policies and procedures, it's going to be very difficult for you to do your job. So beyond that, you're also going to start to see questions develop. You're going to read policy. You're going to read procedures. Or if you've been assigned to that unit from another unit, you're going to wonder, why do they do things this way? Know the policy going in, uh, and that will hopefully help put you on the right footing. I've got a lot of opinions. The third thing I would do, the, the one, two, three, would be join a state association. I think for me, the most helpful thing that I did uh, right off the bat, and I did it at the urging of, a, of the property evidence custodian or technician that was there in the unit, and I was, I was there as a supervisor. She urged me to do one thing, best advice I got, uh, join tape it. For me in Texas, joining that state property evidence association best decision i ever made because that gave me peers that gave me people to talk to that gave me other people in my area that were knowledgeable about evidence and it gave me people that understood the the environment that i had been placed in so number three join that state association number four after you do those three things then you need to get some training uh right now training is difficult it's difficult to it's difficult to find training. It's difficult to attend training. We've canceled all of our classes since March. Uh, I know that there are a couple that are out there, but I think even those are getting canceled kind of late in the game. Uh, it's very difficult to do training right now. I mean, we've got training online, and that's actually the next question. We'll talk about that. But that's the next thing you need to do as a new person coming in. So if the question is, I just started in property evidence, what do I do? What's the first thing I need to do? One, request an inventory. Two, read your policy and procedures. Three, join a state association. And we'll talk about what to do if you don't have a state association here a little bit later. That's another one of our questions. Uh, and then attend training. Those are the four things that you need to do to start yourself off correctly in evidence management. If you can go to training before you get assigned, uh, you're going to be so much further ahead of the game than you would be if you just walked in cold. So number two, another question that we get a lot of is about training. Uh, when do you start? When are you going to start your training classes back up? Are your classes in October and November? Are those classes still on? People want to know about training. We've got a vacuum of training opportunities. I mean, throughout law enforcement, throughout the world. I mean. Even kids trying to go to college, they're they're being trained online. And, and my daughter just went back to Texas Tech in Lubbock, and they're meeting kind of half and half. But training has been one of the first casualties of the pandemic for law enforcement across the board. Uh, and to answer the question, when are we going to start, we really don't know. I don't anticipate another full training schedule until 2021. 
uh, and then even the classes we have scheduled in October and November, those I'm not planning on, or I'm not I'm not betting my my savings on either one of those because we just don't know enough. The problem, or one of the problems with the pandemic, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, is there are too many unknowns, uh, and there there are people that are afraid to go to training, which is understandable. There are people that are angry that training opportunities don't exist. But regardless of where you sit or how you feel, agencies right now, I can just tell you, as a training provider, they're reluctant to send people off to training. Once you get in a training environment, it's very difficult to conduct training in that environment. I mean, if you want to respect social distance requirements or the CDC guidelines, uh, wearing masks, that just really makes training very, very difficult and honestly unenjoyable. I don't know about you, but the prospect of sitting in a desk spaced apart, you know, six feet from the next class participant wearing a mask is not appealing to me. And I can't imagine that it would be appealing to too many other people just because it's, um, it's, it's miserable. Uh, we do, we will begin training again. Uh, we will begin as soon as it is safe and as soon as it is humanly possible. But unfortunately, and probably more importantly, we will begin training when law enforcement agencies are willing and able to send people to training classes. Now, because we can't control that, uh, there are a couple of things that we've done to try to offset that, that vacuum. Uh, you can still sign up for our absolutely free evidence management course. It's a condensed seven or eight hour course that's available online. You can sign up on our website and I'll show you on the link right there. It's If you go to evidence management training and then free online evidence management training, and of course it's going to be slow, uh, you can actually sign up for the class and take an online exam. It will give you a completion certificate and it will give you kind of the basics of what you need to know and understand about evidence management. Is it is it 100%? Is it as good as the interactive experience that you'll get in a two-day training class? No, it's not. So much of what we learn, and if you study kind of adult learning theory or just sit in a class yourself, uh, interaction makes the makes what you learn sink in and stick. We can't offer that online. It just doesn't work the same way. But we can cover the nuts and bolts of evidence management and put them in a, in a package that is hopefully easily to, easy to digest, and then we'll still measure that learning and we'll give you a certificate at the end. We feel so strongly in training and, and appropriate training and quality training that we didn't want to make people pay for the, you know, the same that they would pay for an online class or an in-person class, it's not the same experience. It doesn't have the same value. Uh, but to me, it is it is valuable to put training out there. And I would rather more people be exposed to training and have the opportunity to train than I was or there would be to, you know, charge 50 bucks or 100 bucks for it. Uh, you know, we're losing money, but we're getting people trained. And I know that because every day I see a new certificate uh, for completion for the training being completed. And, you know, that that's a good thing. So there are training opportunities out there. Uh, 
I would suggest you take advantage of the ones that are available online. Uh, this podcast or other podcasts and webinars out there that you can take advantage of. I would encourage you to take advantage of those online trainings and we will let you know, I promise, we will let you know as soon as we start scheduling classes. Now I will say, just to throw it out there, um, in 2021, if your agency is interested in hosting a training class, uh, you know, we would we would love to talk and, and see if we can come to your area and and hang out and talk evidence management, especially if you're in Fiji or maybe a, a tropical place, which I don't see anyone there from uh, Fiji on our list, but Fiji is still open. Uh, so question number three. Uh, was that a beer I saw on your desk during the last webinar? And I would have to say, surely not, because I drink water. This is water. I'm drinking it now. That helps me stay uh, hydrated. So I don't know what you saw. It was probably water. Uh, number four, and this is kind of a combination. We can't afford to hire someone to do an audit for us. What can I do to make my chief listen? Uh, and first, I would say, that this is really two very different questions. What can I do to make my chief listen is a very different question than we can't afford to hire an audit uh, or someone to do an audit for us. Uh, what you can do to make your chief listen is gonna require culture change. It's gonna require buy-in from your chief. It's gonna require developing influence and learning how to speak in the language of a chief executive. Those are things that we can talk about maybe another time, but I would make some suggestions for if your agency can't afford an audit, there's nothing that says an audit has to be someone that you pay to come in. Now I am paid to come in and do audits. I love to do them. Uh, if you want to pay me to come in and do an audit, I absolutely will. But I think it's more important that agencies, regardless of whether you're paying someone to come in or not, you have to engage in a regular audit process. It's not always having an outsider come in and evaluate things. You have to start and create your own audit process. And I was looking on the, the Facebook form or answering a question on the Facebook form today about this very topic. Uh, so there are a few things that you can do to, to kind of push along or to emulate the process of an external audit or to create an audit process for yourself uh, the first thing I would do would be encourage you to just go to our website and one of our websites or one of our website, I'm not really speaking too well today, but if you go to our website under evidence consulting and audits, there's an e-health check and that e-health check, I actually think, I'm not sure what that's going to lead to. No, it is. That's the right link. Okay. So that e-health check, uh, I just want to look at our website. That e-health check is a great place to start. It is a audit process, a condensed, significantly condensed audit process. Uh, and we've got a webinar on that if you want to watch a past episode about that. But that's a great place to start your own audit process. If you can't afford to bring somebody out, bring the internet in and let, the, let this process uh, start that process for you. And I would also kind of direct you to the, and I'm putting the, I'm burying the lead here, but I, I posted two documents on the Facebook evidence management community forum today. One is an annual audit template and the other is an inspection template. 
I would encourage you to join the forum if you're not already on the forum and look at those two documents because that can help you start and create your own audit process. Um, it's not critical that you pay someone to come in and do an audit, although absolutely I would love to do that. But what is critical is that you start and create your own audit process and have a have a, a a method to evaluate your agency's compliance with your own policies and best practices uh, that you can do on your own. That doesn't necessarily have to cost uh, money in, in consulting. So speaking of, uh, and this is really, the, the, I think I just started to stammer. Uh, the question was, or the, the question that I is, do you know a good resource in X? It's usually a state. Do you know a, a person in the Dallas area where I am? And if if the question is, do you know someone in the Dallas area or Texas, then I will say, yeah, me. But if it, if the question is, do you know someone in Connecticut that I could talk to you about dispositions? You know, I know a lot of people in this industry and, and throughout the evidence management kind of world, I meet more people every year. And that's a, that's a neat thing to connect and network. But I don't know anyone in Connecticut that can help you dispose of biological evidence. Um, there is, however, a resource that is designed and intended to help facilitate and answer those questions for you. And for that, if you're not already a, man, a member of the Facebook Evidence Management Community Forum, I would encourage you to sign up. Uh, you know, this community right now, we started at the beginning of the pandemic. And let me look, I just want to see how many, I'm, I'm going to, terrible social media thing or whatever presence because it's just a foreign world to me but there are about 500 people on this forum and the cool thing about having 500 people that do the same thing that you do together in one place is that if you have a question about biological evidence disposition in connecticut then there is more than likely one of those 500 people, if you post a question there, they're probably going to either know the answer or know someone that can direct you to the answer. And that's really something that's been missing for evidence custodians is that connection, that community. Uh, that's why we built this, especially during the pandemic. I mean, you're, you're stuck either at home or in the office. I know that that's not the case so much anymore, but you're still isolated. Uh, we don't have as many meetings, in-person meetings, as we did before the pandemic. So this forum is a great place to kind of reach out and and get your questions answered. So if you're in Connecticut and you want to know the answer to that question, a great place to post it is that evidence management community forum. We just had a question today, and a lot of these answers are kind of cross-pollinating, but there was a guy in Kentucky asking about a state evidence association. There are a lot of people in Kentucky on the evidence forum. They were able to answer, hey, I'm from, you know, Covington, Kentucky, or I'm from, you know, another place in Kentucky. Uh, my geography is a little off. But those kind of connections can happen here, and that's where things can start. And that's really one of the fun things about doing what we're doing is providing that connection and that forum. Uh, and then there was a question on, like this morning, just to give you an example. Uh, and I should probably go back to the discussion. There was a question this morning on the, the, the Facebook community forum, and I'm going to do this really quick. 
probably should have waited. But I like to go to, and yeah, we try to weed out and make sure that, that people that are signed on actually belong to evidence, uh, to property rooms or assigned uh, and work in the field of law enforcement. Uh, so we try to screen those. I know that we were learning that screening process. Um, but there's a cool discussion this morning. Just to give you an example, there's a question about money. What do you do about money? And it was posted this morning, and there are a lot of people you'll see. I want to pick your brains about storing money. We put all of our confiscated money in a safe in the property room. Not uncommon. Uh, what can we do about that? So in the span of five hours, there have been you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people chime in and provide suggestions or suggest resources or suggest, uh, you know, solutions. I, I added my two cents worth, but that's the fun thing about this. Now, specifically with respect to that question, what we teach and to answer my, my answer to that question is I encourage people to deposit non-forensic currency. Now you got to break up currency into two separate categories, and there's another foreign currency question on there that I'm not going to get back to just now. But uh, forensic evidence or forensic currency and non-forensic currency. If you've got money that is deposited as evidence and it has forensic value, whether it's because it's a sequential bill or there's biological contamination on it or latent prints, uh, some reason why the, the money, the currency itself has forensic value, then obviously that's the kind of thing you're going to want to keep and store in your money vault until the case is disposed so you can do something with the currency. But for every other currency seizure or currency type, we encourage people to deposit those. And that, that might require you to open up several different types of accounts. Forfeitures have different rules uh, than you know, found property might. Uh, there might be certain laws or return requirements in your state with respect to or interest or returning interest. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways you can set up accounts. There are non-interest bearing accounts, but the main thing that we would encourage you is not store all that evidence in your vault. Um, it's just an inappropriate, uh, I mean, it, it, it creates security problems and it creates, um, it creates an environment where bad things can happen and you just don't want that. I mean, that there's no reason, there's no, there's no business case. There's no, uh, there's no law. There's no best practice that suggests we keep all that money in our safes. And as such, we encourage people not to. Uh, another question I get frequently is, you know, I'm in Kentucky. Do you have a list of states with evidence associations? Cool thing is that that's, that list is growing uh, slowly, but growing. So if you go back to, I'll go back to our uh, website, and I do have a list. I do have a working list of agencies with, or states with uh, state associations. And I need to update the list and add Missouri. Missouri is the latest state to formally start an evidence, a property and evidence association. And, you know, they had been meeting for a while and we were able to partner with them in a very tiny way and help them get started. But that's really, 
I believe the most important thing, the most important investment that we can make in evidence and, and as far as changing the culture and getting effective, lasting change uh, implemented and and built into evidence management is state associations. I know that Minnesota just revived their association. They had already had an existing association. It went dormant. Uh, they're reviving that, and they're going to bring back an evidence, a property evidence, a state association in Illinois. And that is really important work that's being done. We're talking with some folks in Oklahoma to do the same thing right now in Oklahoma. Now, that's been slowed by the pandemic, but it's still a conversation. It's still on our radar. Uh, our goal, which was lofty and probably never going to be obtained, was to have 20 property evidence associations in the United States in 2020. Now, when 75% of the year is pretty much wiped out effectively by a pandemic and might linger into 2021, uh, We'll change the year, you know, 21 and 2021. We can do this all the way up to the year 2050. Uh, I will probably be dead, but we can still have that goal. Just change the numbers. The, the main thing is we want to encourage states and encourage people in those states to start associations and join associations that exist. Um, next question. And when it's, about 2.30, we'll, I'll stop asking these questions or stop answering these kind of reader questions and move on to yours because we've got a few questions that I would like to get to. Uh, I can't get our officers to package blank correctly, whether it's money or guns or anything. Uh, do you have suggestions for getting them to do things the right way? And I, I obviously, I mean, I absolutely do. Uh, I will say first that pain is sometimes the only motivator uh, in order to require people to do things a certain way. Hopefully, you won't have to resort to that. Hopefully, that, that's not you. But I've got four kind of recommendations with respect to getting officers to start packaging or start doing anything the right way. Um, the first thing that you have to do is establish the right way. I mean, that has to be documented. You have to set your expectations before you can hold people or before you, before you can expect that those uh, conditions will be met. So the first thing that you need to do is take a careful look. What is the right way that you want this thing to be done? If it's packaging currency in a certain way, then have you established that? Have you written down that procedure? Do you know exactly what it is that you want? For most of us, that, that question has been answered. You know, yes, it is. So if you like your procedures, the way they're written, let's say that that's, that's the right thing to do. The second thing that you have to do is make sure that you document that appropriately and document it in a way that people can understand. Police officers like pictures. It is very helpful for them to see pictures. I can make this package look like this package if I can see this package. But sometimes it is difficult to translate a written description into a physical, tangible outcome. So I would make sure that you document your procedures in a manner that is understandable to the end user. If they can't figure out what it is that they're supposed to do, then you're going to continue to deal with the problem of people doing things the wrong way. But for me, the most important step in this process is at intake. Now, if you're an agency like Minneapolis or, or Baltimore, where you've got 24-7 property evidence operations, uh, that's, that's the exception to the rule. 
But the, the most important time for making sure your officers do the right thing the right way is at intake. And if they know that your process, that you inspect every package that comes in and you immediately reject every package that is packaged inappropriately, if that becomes the norm, the culture for your evidence unit, that they know that their, their packages are going to be inspected, they know that they're going to be rejected if they don't meet the standard, uh, that's a way to start changing the culture at your agency and getting those things done. And the fourth layer is accountability. Now, you might not have the authority to compel them to do anything, but by setting the expectation, by establishing what the right thing to do is, and then make, making them do it, uh, that's, that's the way or the path to get officers to start doing things the right way. Um, you got to figure out what the right thing to do is communicate the right thing, and then hold them accountable, create an environment where the right thing is the only acceptable alternative. I will say this, if you accept into your evidence vault things that are packaged, okay, this will, you know, this is not terrible, so I'm going to go ahead and let it in. The more, you know, the more you let in that doesn't meet the standard, the more substandard packaging that you let in, the more you can reasonably expect to receive. So you've got to draw a line in the stand and have certain certain conditions that you just say no to. Um, let me get to some user questions here. There, I think there are three or four. Uh, I want to make sure I answer those before we finish the rest. And we'll 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 probably knock off here about two forty-five. So I want to get to these real quick. Um, First one is, how do you deal with the safekeeping of firearms? Our policy doesn't allow it because it violates Second Amendment rights. Now, this is a great question. Uh, and I will tell you that that this is going to change in every jurisdiction. In every single one of the 50 states, this answer is probably different. Um, I will say, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. Um, towards the end of my assignment in the property unit, the law in the state of Texas changed. Now, if you are a Texas legislator or related to one, I apologize. But in Texas, the legislature is bad at doing one thing, writing laws. It's just not their forte. It's not their sweet spot. But they wrote an evidence-related an evidence -related law with respect to firearms that covered safekeeping of firearms, which, you know, we should think, be thankful for. Hey, they're at least creating the, the authority to, to keep items for safekeeping. But the way that this law was written, it was impossible to follow. It required us to check jurisdictions and, and databases that didn't exist and weren't available to us. It was an unfunded mandate, an unfollowable mandate, but it was the law of the land. So we changed our policy to not take in safekeeping firearms. There's nothing under the law, there's nothing under the Constitution, unless your state is different, that requires or compels an agency to take items in for safekeeping uh, in general, especially firearms. Now, it was the custom and practice of most agencies that I know of uh, especially on a call where there was a suicidal subject involving a firearm, that that firearm would be seized. And I know that there are jurisdictions where all firearms are seized pretty much all the time. Uh, and if your, your, your state covers that, if it provides you the authority or the, uh, uh, the obligation to do it, then absolutely. 
but if there is no obligation to seize firearms and there is no obligation to uh, remove firearms, there are other creative measures that your agency can do to avoid that safekeeping item. Now, the fact that your policy kind of indicates that that you don't allow safekeeping of firearms because it violates Second Amendments, well, if someone is voluntarily, I mean, safekeeping involves a voluntary agreement. Uh, you know, you, we take things on behalf either because they're not able to speak for themselves or they willingly give us these items. So that's not really a, a Second Amendment violation. Where it becomes a problem is when we take things for safekeeping and there is no process. You know, there is there is no receipt that is given to the person that owns the, the weapon or the firearm or, or whatever item it is. There's no due process. So then we're not just violating a Second Amendment issue. We're talking about a Fourth Amendment and a Fourteenth Amendment issue. So safekeeping has huge implications. And I love this question because it gets into some very slippery slopes with respect to evidence management. We are required to store evidence. We do store property, uh, but there is no shall in most states. So the way that we dealt with safekeeping in, in our jurisdiction, especially of firearms, we stopped taking firearms in for safekeeping because the law was impossible to follow. But if you're in a jurisdiction where you do take in firearms, I would I would recommend as a policy recommendation providing a receipt, you know, uh, giving them due process or a way to have those items that belong to them return. Uh, follow the law of your state. Follow the policies of your jurisdiction. Um, so that's probably a pretty convoluted question. It's an excellent question. I would love to spend more time on it. Uh, and Audrey, if you're still listening, send me an email and, and we can discuss maybe how this affects you more specifically, because I'm afraid that, that you're asking a question that I didn't answer uh, very well. So another question. This is another excellent question. See, that's why these things are fun. How much research is considered due diligence when trying to locate an owner of property? And this is another, uh, this is another great question. And it's, it's also unquantifiable. I mean, due diligence is, due diligence comes from kind of more of the court systems, a legal term for an appropriate amount of activity directed towards a specific task. Uh, and I'm not sure what the standard of due diligence is at your agency when trying to locate an owner of property. Sometimes that's that's kind of crafted by statute. Like in Texas, due diligence for us means we have to post the property in a paper of record. Now, nobody reads papers anymore and nobody posts things in papers because we don't travel in wagons anymore. And we don't, you know, I mean, so due diligence is, 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 is a qualitative term, not a quantitative term, but I would establish a standard, you know, these are the certain databases that we can check. I mean, and it depends on the, it really kind of depends on the, the, the property item itself. I mean, we're not going to, we're probably not going to apply, even though we might ought to apply the same standard and trying to locate as we would, uh, you know, for, for an item of, of low or no value, like a tire iron. If you find a tire iron, I mean, how much due diligence is possible? How much identifying information is associated with that object or with that item? 
Another thing to consider with respect to due diligence, and this also involves the intake process, is how much information were you provided uh, when the item was taken in? You can avoid a lot of due diligence by making sure that your officers document ownership when they enter an item or bring an item into you. But I would say that if you do your level best, you check the databases that are available, um, you know, you, you, uh, it's, it's really hard to quantify. Uh, so that might be another non-answer or half answer, but you want to do your, your absolute level best. If, if that information is knowable, then you need to check the, the sources for finding that information. Now, you might not have access to all those, but you're going to reach a point where you've exhausted your capacity to search. And I, I would say, I would kind of land there. Uh, let's say you've exhausted the possibilities for a reasonable search for ownership. That might be the end of due diligence for you and your agency. But it also might mean you need to learn some different research techniques or bring in some new research techniques to your agency. One cool thing that the law enforcement agencies have available to them are, are database and search services like TLO and uh, I'm trying to think of like, I'm, I can't think of the name of it, but they're, they're basically people finder databases to where you can locate people, places, and information it's available to a wide variety of, of, of clients, but law enforcement is one of those that can use that database information. Sometimes that's more helpful. I mean, uh, so again, if I'm answering any of these incompletely, please reach out. Um, what is the name of the Missouri Association? I am proud to say the Missouri Association is the Missouri Association for Property and Evidence, MAPE, M-A-P-E. One tough thing about new state associations is the acronym. I mean, there's always association, there's always property, there's always evidence. So it's some variant typically of APE, A-P-E. Uh, you can, like Florida, they've switched up a little bit. PEEF, Property and Evidence Association of Florida. Uh, but there's CAPE, there's MAPE, there's TAPIT. Uh, there are other associations, uh, like in Illinois, IAPE, is not a national association. It's or it's actually IAPM, IAPEM, the Illinois Association for Property Evidence Managers or Management. So it's going to be some variant of that. But in Missouri, it's MAPE. And Haley, if uh, you email me or maybe post that on the forum, I know that uh, one of the frequent contributors to that forum is a guy named Jake Wilburn, and he's one of the uh, the folks that helped found MAPE, he's on their board, and uh, I'm sure he will reach out to you and try to help get that thing kicked off. And I know that there are other people on the, the evidence forum as well that are MAPE members or members of the newly formed MAPE, uh, and they will be happy to, to get you on board. Um, so cool. Well, if we have more questions, we'll answer those. Or we'll go back to them. I've got two more, and then we can kind of Set the stage for next time. Uh, the only incineration facility near my agency or our agency is seven hours away. What can I do with biological evidence for disposal? And again, this is another great question or resource for that forum. Uh, I know in our area, there was one, and I'm in the North Texas area, just north of Dallas by a little bit. And the agency that I worked for, we had one approved 
EPA approved incineration facility near us. And it was three, almost three and a half hours away uh, from Dallas. You would think that there would be more. I mean, Dallas is a pretty big town. Uh, you know, as a metropolitan statistical area, there's a few million people that live here, but we had one facility that's three hours away. That facility actually went down for about a year and a half because they had a broken part on one of their incinerators or their main incinerator. So we didn't, we weren't able to dispose of biological evidence for almost a year. And the, the nearest facility was nine hours away in Beaumont. So that's, that is an, that is not uncommon for many agencies to deal with that same issue. Uh, how do I get rid of that stuff? Um, there are a couple of things I would encourage you to, to consider to think about. One, post it, you know, try to get that information out there, try to ask those questions. But two, there's another, there, there are two other alternatives that I'm, that I would ask you to consider exploring or that might be of use to you. One is to partner with another agency that has an existing contract with a with an approved biohazard disposal uh, vendor. Hospitals will sometimes have contracts, or all hospitals will. Uh, sometimes fire departments will have uh, contracts with biological waste uh, disposition companies that they might already have as a part of a contract. They can help you, but partnering with hospitals, partnering with labs, partnering with other entities that, that routinely engage in biological evidence or biological biohazard disposition, that's a great place to start. Number two, the second thing I would ask you to consider, there are, there are companies out there that do this incineration work uh, and people mail their incinerated items to them, to that facility. It is entirely reasonable to construct a policy based around that, especially if you're eight to 12 hours away from a facility to create a mailing process for disposing of that biological evidence. I wouldn't do the same with drugs. Uh, by any stretch, I just think there are too many problems that could be associated with that. Too many laws, uh, too many health issues, too many, too many horrible scenarios. But with evidence that is basically primarily a biological importance or forensic importance, uh, and there's not the same value or misuse that could be applied. Um, I would strongly consider contacting one of these companies about that mail-in program for disposing of evidence. You can do it properly. Uh, you can create policy and draft procedures that, uh, that are appropriate and would still safeguard that disposition process. So I would encourage you to look at that. Uh, and we'll get to the, you know what? It is 2.45. Uh, we'll do one more question. And I'm going to skip one. The evidence labels we use fall off of some of our packages after a really short time. What kind of labels stick to most packages? This is actually one of my favorite topics. Uh, so I'll probably, every, anytime this question comes up, I like to answer it. But we recommend using polypropylene labels. The label itself is important. The, the, the material that the label is printed on is important. If you use paper, it's going to degrade. It's going to fall apart. It's going to, if it gets wet, it's going to fizzle, all kinds of bad things. You want to use polypropylene as the, the substrate, the material that you use for your evidence labels if you want your labels to be permanent. Uh, they use polypropylene labels on oil field pipe. Oil field conditions, especially for labels, are some of the roughest possible 
storage environment or working conditions that you can imagine. They use those kind of labels on oil field pipe because of their permanence, because of their readability, because of their utility, and because of the way they handle the, uh, the elements, regardless if it's extreme heat or extreme cold or extreme pressure, they, they tend to work. The other thing that you want to look for is a permanent adhesive. I think that's one of the things that people fail to understand is that labels stick differently to different. If you've ever bought a little plastic piece of junk at Walmart and then you're trying to take the label off and it just it just makes a gooey mess all over the side of that thing uh, and you've experienced the rage of that, you understand that there are different adhesives. Now, why didn't they use a different adhesive? I can just pull that label off. Well, they used a more permanent adhesive. Polypropylene labels with permanent ad adhesive are really the only appropriate label adhesive combination for evidence. Uh, polypropylene labels will also adjust to form if you're putting them on bags or boxes. They will, they will tend to hold their shape or hold to the package better than a paper label, which will tend to separate. Um, also, don't use paper labels in general, but don't use strings to attach tags to evidence. If you use tags to tag large items and you've got it attached with a string or a wire, don't use that. Use a, use a zip tie that's durable and rated to withstand UV radiation, especially if it's going outside. Instead of putting it on a paper or cardboard card, use plastic. Use some kind of form that's durable and will uh, weather the elements and last under normal storage conditions. Well, I hope that the questions that we've asked and answered today are of some value to you. Uh, if not, uh, if these questions come up and you can point somebody to either this website, uh, this uh, webinar series or podcast series, please direct them to it. I appreciate those of you who ask questions and let me know where you're coming from. Let me, I got one more question coming in, maybe two more. How can I get my agency to see the benefit to a standalone property module instead of using the RMS? Now, Rebecca, that is a great question. And I am a huge proponent of evidence management systems. Um, the best, well, I, I, don't, I only have like 12 minutes left. So I would say this. One, look at the needs of your property and evidence unit and compare those to the needs that are met by the RMS. A records management system is good for managing records. Uh, they usually throw in evidence as an add-on. They don't do all of the things that need to be done. I, I would Let me answer the question this way. Maybe that's a better way to answer it. Um, if you look at our standards and you go to our resources, resource links, and that's just the wrong button. Uh, so on our website, there is a series of standards and we're in the process of updating the ones that are online. And you can see that my web connection or internet connection is extremely slow. But I would go look at our standards and they will give you a list of things that technology ought to do. Go to chapter four in our standards and best practices. And we've compiled a list of everything that technology ought to be able to do. Uh, it starts right here in process automation features. Um, measure the RMS that you're looking at or the one that you have compared to these features? Does it do all of these things? Um, is, does it allow you to complete an inventory process, an audit process? Does it 
does it record and track chain of custody? Can you check evidence in? Does it do anything that meets your needs? Uh, does it integrate all the workflow processes from disposition, from intake to disposition into the system? If the answer is no, that RMS is probably not um, even suitable to meet the needs of your evidence unit and certainly will not make you more efficient, will not make you more effective, will not make you more sustainable as an operation. But Rebecca, if I can answer this question in more detail, because I realize I just, uh, I, I probably cut that one short. I didn't see it until the end. I would love to discuss that with you offline. Call me or email me. Uh, would love to talk about that because that's another favorite thing of mine. Um, we got someone talking about zebra printers. Yeah, zebra printers are are kind of the industry standard, but any any barcode printer will print on polypropylene labels with stand, with a permanent ad adhesive and they're also going to print with a thermal transfer ribbon instead of a direct thermal. You want to make sure that your printing your label printer is a thermal transfer printer. You want to use the right kind of ribbon to make it permanent. Um that's something I forgot to add. Thank you, Tiffany, for that, because it is important to use a thermal transfer printer, not a direct thermal printer like you use at a grocery store point of sale for your receipts. Um, I think that's it for today. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you for being here. Again, if you have any questions, uh, contact me uh, by email or by phone. I'm around. We'll see you next time, and we'll try to get out the topic a little closer to press time. So. Have a great week. Thank you.